Welcome to Ancient Words, Modern Message. I'm your host, Roger Womble. The past is a mirror, and the more we examine what came before us, the more we can understand where we are heading. The prophet Hosea made it clear to the northern kingdom of Israel that God really wanted to heal their land, but they were intent on persisting in their wicked ways. And so, the immediate future was bleak, as we will view in intricate detail in this eighth episode of I Love You Truly, Studies in the Book of Hosea. We're going to be taking a look at Hosea chapter 7, and I'm going to begin by reading the text for you, and I will tell you ahead of time. If you read through this and you're wondering, what's this all about? Don't feel badly, because this is challenging stuff, and I applaud you in advance for uh, working your way through it with me today. Hosea chapter 7, hopefully by the time we're finished in the next half hour, uh, you'll, you'll have a little bit of a clearer sense of what is going on here. But follow along as I read, please. Hosea chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, that is the whole chapter. Uh, God, through the prophet Hosea, writes this to Israel. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire, from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are, as, are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the people's. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, a silly and without sense, calling a silly bird and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This 
shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Did you get all that? <laughs> well, as I said, this is challenging material. No question about it. And I would suspect that uh, th there, there are not too many folks who are working their way through the book of Hosea as we are. So let's, let's take a shot at it and, and see uh, what we come up with. First of all, I want to remind you that Hosea, of course, was a prophet. You know that. He was a prophet of God to the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was during a period of time that generally has been dated because of the designation of the kings who were reigning in the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel. Uh, the period of time, basically from 750 to 715 BC, that period of time, about a 35 year period of time. And like all of the Old Testament prophets, who are, to say the least, an interesting bunch, the Old Testament prophets. Like all of the Old Testament prophets, the, the goal, the task, the purpose of Hosea was to try every which way he possibly could to drive home this point. So what is the point that the Old Testament prophets time and time again are trying to get across to the Jewish people? whether they are speaking first to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, what is the point they're trying to drive home? Well, it is this. This is the message of the prophets. You Jewish people, Israel, you are foolishly going the wrong way. And so the prophet calls for there to be repentance. The message is repent and avoid the consequences of your folly, that is to say, your foolishness, your stupid decisions, avoid the consequences of your folly, and the consequences of your folly, if you do not repent, are divine judgment and destruction. That's the message of the prophet, in a nutshell. Regardless of who the prophet is, that's always the message of the prophet. And so it is in the case of Hosea here. Now, I want you to see from this chapter, these 16 verses, that, that when you step back and you look at the 16 verses, you realize that there are two dominant themes in this chapter, in the 16 verses. Two dominant themes. And so if you would have your notes to one side and the text to the other side, let me tell you what I mean by that. The two dominant themes are this. First of all, God's persistent appeal for repentance. And so God, through the prophet, is persistently appealing to the people, through the prophet, for repentance. And God, through the prophet, assures the people that if they will repent, that is to say, if they will change their ways, then he will heal them, he will redeem them, and they will escape judgment and destruction that will surely fall upon them if they don't repent, if they persist in their foolish ways. So this is God's persistent appeal for repentance. And so you notice in verse 1, for example, God says this, when I would heal Israel, and verse 13, he says, 
in the middle of that verse, I would redeem them. In other words, God is saying through the prophet, I want to heal my people. I want to redeem them. Redeem is the idea, of course, of taking someone who is enslaved and actually paying the price to get them out of slavery. And that's what redemption is. And God says, I, I want to heal my people. I want to heal their land. I want to get them out of slavery and bondage to their sin and their rebellion with all of its consequences. I want to do that so that they will escape judgment and destruction. That judgment and destruction, however, is the backdrop that is in all of this. If you would notice, for example, verse 12 and verse 13, God says in verse 12 in the middle, I will bring them down. And then also in verse 12, I will discipline them. And then in verse 13, destruction to them. And then verse 16, their princes shall fall by the sword. That's all language of this impending judgment and destruction if they do not repent. But that's one of the dominant themes. It's God appealing through the prophet to his people for their repentance, but at the same time saying, if you don't, this is what is going to happen. The other dominant theme that is just woven through this chapter is Israel, and in this case, we're talking about the 10 tribes of the Northern Kingdom. We're talking about uh, the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Israel's passionate, and I use that word advisedly, uh, or maybe a synonym would be heated. Israel's heated pursuit of the wrong things. And the result of Israel's pursuit of the wrong things uh, is, as we see, a number of things here. First of all, there's the description of what we would call societal disintegration. Societal disintegration, which is to say the society is falling apart. How do we know that? Because of the wrong choices of these Jews of the northern kingdom. Well, look at verses 1 and 2. God says through the prophet, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim. Ephraim, remember, is another name for Israel, the northern kingdom. It's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the largest of the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom. And so oftentimes Ephraim is a term that is used simply to refer to the Jews of the northern kingdom. The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. And so God is, is pointing out the iniquity of the Jewish people and the evil deeds. Now, we don't know all of what they were, but we get a flavor for that as the verse goes on to say this, for they deal falsely. That means to say truth is not valued at all. People are lying and cheating all over the place. I know that's hard to believe <laughs> that people would live like that. And then the thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. You get that picture? That, that what's going on in society is people are not safe in their own homes. 
the thief breaks in, and they're not safe in the streets because the bandits are raiding outside. Again, I know that's hard to believe that there's a culture or a society in which people don't feel safe in their own homes and they don't feel safe in the streets. I, can you relate to that? Well, okay, but read on. Verse 2 uh, goes on to describe, they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Their deeds surround them. They are, and I think the reference there is to the evil deeds of the Jewish people. They are before my face, God says. When I look at my people, I see that they are wrapped up in sin and wickedness. And then the first part of verse 4 says simply this, they are all adulterers. I think that could refer to literal adultery, that is infidelity to marriage vows, but I think it can also refer to a sort of figurative adultery, which is to say that they are they're violating their faithfulness to God and perhaps even their faithfulness to one another, not just a wife or a husband, but their faithfulness to one another. They are all adulterers. So that's a picture of things falling apart in society. Next, there is political corruption. Now, I know this one will be hard to believe, too. Um, notice verse 3 puts it this way. By their evil, so we've just talked about the evil, the wickedness of the, of the people. By their evil, they make the king glad. Now, would you not want to say that the king over a group of people would be upset when his people are evil. Would you not say that? Would you not say that, that a political leader should have as his goal and his objective a, a nation or a group of people who are legitimate, fine, hardworking, honest, upstanding people? But that's not the case. We're told here that the king... Now, the king who was on the throne of the northern kingdom when Hosea began his prophecy was Jeroboam II. And by the way, in the description of the reign of Jeroboam II in 2 Kings, we're told that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the king was wicked. And every king after him, in fact, every king of the northern kingdom was wicked. And in fact, the evil of the people made the king glad. And read on, and the princes by their treachery. And so the princes, that's the other political rulers, you know, the advisors and the cabinet and that sort of thing. Uh, they were actually made glad by the treachery of the people. That's political corruption. As I already indicated, if you would take the time to look at the book of 2 Kings. Now, that's an interesting. First and 2 Kings are, of course, the record of, as the name would indicate, the various kings of Israel. And uh, the book of 2 Kings actually includes the record of uh, the kings of the northern kingdom as well as the kings of the southern kingdom. Uh, the books of First and 2 Chronicles are parallel to the book of 1 and 2 Kings, 
except that the book of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, deals only with the kings of the southern kingdom. But First and Second Kings describe the reign of the various kings of the northern kingdom and the kings of the southern kingdom until each of those kingdoms ended with destruction. And the record of the kings of the northern kingdom, uh, starting with the one who was the king when Hosea was in his ministry of prophet, is 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 17, and then it goes to chapter 17, verse 23. And it's the list of seven kings, the last seven kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, beginning with Jeroboam II, and then going all the way through to the last king who actually was defeated by the Assyrian army when they swept down and destroyed the northern kingdom. When you read that description, you're reading of just how bad the kings really were. In fact, as the notes would indicate, after Jeroboam II, he's the one who was reigning at the beginning of Hosea's prophetic ministry, there were six kings who followed. Jeroboam II. And of those six kings, four of them were assassinated. So you can see that there was a lot of political turmoil. There was a lot of political intrigue. There was a lot of political um, corruption. But then, not only was there societal disintegration and political corruption, but there was also, no surprise here, spiritual degradation spiritual degradation. Look at some of the verses. Uh, verse 10, for example. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Who is his face? Well, I think it's a reference actually to Israel. Sometimes Israel is used in the feminine, sometimes in the masculine. The pride of Israel testifies to Israel's face. And the pride of Israel is really the history of the Jewish people, times when the Jewish people were walking with the Lord and were experiencing blessings from the Lord. For example, when Joshua took the Jews across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, the enemies of the Jewish people were defeated right and left. They were walking with the Lord. They were obedient to the Lord. And it was a proud day for the Jewish people. The pride, as we see here, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. So the Jews know the history of their own people, but, read on, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. Verse 13, woe to them. For they have strayed from me. Destruction to them. For they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them. But they speak lies against me. The lies are probably something of the nature of. God doesn't really care about us. We don't really have it that good. We have a lot of problems. If God really loved us. Then he would give us. Fill in the blank. This, 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 and this. Speaking lies against God. They speak lies against me. Verse 14. They do not cry to me from the heart. In other words, they're not repenting. They're not shedding tears over their wickedness and asking God for his mercy. 
They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. That's interesting. They're crying, but they're not crying for the right thing. Why are they crying in their beds? Read on. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. That's interesting. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. It is most likely a reference to the pagan religious practice of appeasing the wrath of fertility gods and goddesses by actually cutting oneself, gashing oneself. Do you remember the confrontation that Elijah had with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel recorded in 1 Kings chapter 18? You remember that uh, Elijah gave priority to the prophets of Baal to call down fire from their god, Baal, and so to consume the animal sacrifice that was on the altar. And you remember that as the prophets of Baal were calling on Baal, their god, nothing happened. Remember what Elijah said? Well, maybe you have to yell a little louder. Maybe your God is sleeping and you have to wake him up. Then what they did is they began to cut themselves. Well, that's a reference to this, this pagan practice. And the idea here seems to be that the Jews of the northern kingdom were cutting themselves and they're wailing in pain in their beds and they're hoping that as a result of cutting themselves, that the pagan deities will smile on them and they will have an abundant harvest of grain and wine. They wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. So they're crying. They're complaining, but not for the right thing. Uh, and then as we read on there, verse 14, uh, I'm sorry, verse 15, Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. It is God's way of saying, after all I have done for you as a people, I've trained you, I've strengthened your arms over your enemies in the past, and yet you devise evil against me. All of that together is a picture of spiritual degradation. And then the other thing is international intrigue. International intrigue, which means moving into alliances with different nations to try to get the best deal. And so we have, for example, verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Remember, Ephraim refers to the northern kingdom. And mixes himself with the peoples seems to have the idea of you're, you're moving in different directions to form alliances with different Gentile nations all around you. And if there's any question about that, look at verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. The record in 2 Kings 14 of these kings of the northern kingdom is they're constantly going back and forth between the dominant world powers of that time, which at that time were specifically Assyria, in the, in the north, and specifically the northeast, and e Egypt to the southwest. And forming alliances between Egypt and Assyria going back and forth, and the result was this intrigue that was going on that we know did not work out for them.
Okay, so those are the themes in this chapter, as you've seen them. But now, as we wrap things up, I want to call your attention to the fact that, remember, as a prophet, Hosea uh, tries every which way to, to make his point, to call on the people to repent and to avoid God's judgment and to avoid destruction. And one of the ways Hosea does this, which is rather common and typical of the Old Testament prophets, is to use different imagery, to use different symbolic language metaphors and similes. And in fact, one of the challenges of this chapter is that there are actually four different metaphors or four different symbols to describe and characterize Israel's deplorable condition. And let me walk you through that. First of all, these four symbols are this. Israel is like an oven. Israel is like a half-baked cake. Israel is like a silly dove. And Israel is a treacherous bow. What does that mean? Well, verses 4 through 7. Israel is like an oven. Um, an oven at that period of time was not like our oven now. We're waiting for the delivery of an oven now in our home. We've waited two and a half months. We already put money down. And when it arrives, uh, you know, Phyllis has been making do with an oven that isn't very good in our home. Uh, but when it arrives, it has all kinds of gadgets and gizmos on it. You can turn it on and it's going to bring the temperature, at least we hope it will, uh, bring the temperature up to exactly what it should be. Uh, and and it's, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. But an oven at that period of time wasn't like that. The way an oven worked was you built a fire underneath it. And then you carefully tended the fire to make sure that the oven was heated to just the right temperature to, to do what you wanted it to do, to bake the bread the way you wanted it to be baked. And it required care and attention if it was going to work properly. Well, we have the description here of Israel as an oven that didn't work very well. Notice verse four, they are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. Here's the picture of the baker. So he, you know, takes the flour and he takes the oil and he mixes it all up, uh, maybe in the afternoon or the early evening. And, um, and then he, he kneads the dough, you know, kind of, you know, forms it. And then he adds yeast to it and forms it some more. And then he sets it aside to the side of the oven to just get just the right amount of heat so that it'll rise properly and will produce the bread that he wants to have. But there's one catch, and that is the baker has to make sure that the fire underneath is just right. Otherwise, the oven is worthless and it's not going to do its job. Here's the picture that we have here. It is the picture of um, Israel being like a heated oven, and the baker doesn't bother to take care of the fire. He ceases to stir the fire. In fact, after he mixes the dough and, and adds the leaven, he basically takes a nap for the, for the next 10 hours. And by the next morning, the fire is not what it should be. Well, that's a picture of Israel. 
like a worthless oven. And then uh, we read on to that picture, verse 5. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. There's that image of heat again, that image of passion. And you know that there's a, there's a connection between that which is hot and that which is passion, something that is really intense. And so we're told here that the princes uh, become sick with the heat of wine. And the picture is of the leaders of the Jewish people who are really intense and they're really passionate, like, like the heat of an oven, but it's misdirected and misguided passion and intensity. Verse 6, for with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. There's the picture again of heat in an oven. And it's the idea of intensity and passion and the Jewish people are intense and they're passionate. But the problem is they're intense and they're, in, they're passionate about the wrong things. They're hot as an oven and they devour their rulers. Uh, verse six, with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. So you have that picture of Israel that's using the symbol of the oven. How about the half-baked cake, verse 8? Well, continuing with the idea of bread, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. So here's the picture of the baker again. He's got flour. He's got oil. He adds a few seasonings, and then he throws in some junk. You know, just bad stuff. And what is the result going to be of the bread that comes from that mixture? Well, it's not going to be very good. It's going to be disgusting. And that's what God through Hosea is saying. The Jewish people are mixing themselves with the Gentile people around them like a baker who throws in bad ingredients into the, into the dough of the bread. And then he says, Ephraim is a cake not turned. There's a picture. And by the way, I've been in Israel many times when I've seen bread that is made on an open fire over a pan. And you put that bread on the pan and it is hot. But the top of it is not cooked. And so if you leave it on, the bottom gets burnt and the top is not cooked. So you know what the secret is? You turn it over and you make sure that it's cooked properly on both sides. And the Jewish people, says Hosea, God through Hosea, are like a cake that hasn't been turned. In other words, they're worthless. Verses 11 and 12, there's the symbol of a silly dove. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. The picture is like doves who are just kind of you know, flying around, you know, and they say, well, let's go over there and see what's happening. What they don't realize is there's a big net that's spread over top. And they fly in there like happy as doves, I guess. And the next thing you know is the net just comes down and captures them 
and brings them to the ground. That's the picture of Israel. And last of all, a treacherous bow, verse 16. They return, but not upward. In other words, they change their minds, they turn, they return, they change their minds, but they're not repenting of their sins and turning to God. They're like a treacherous bow. What is a treacherous bow? Well, a treacherous bow is a bow that doesn't shoot straight. Or it is a rifle that is that is not properly calibrated so that when you aim it at the target, you hit the target. A treacherous bow is a bow that for various reasons, when you draw the bow with the arrow and you shoot it, it goes the wrong place. And the result is you fall at the hands of your enemies because you're not properly shooting your bow. They are like a treacherous bow. And so they're turning this way and that way, but they're not turning to God in the right direction. And as a result of that, their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. Now, as I said there, there's a difference of opinion, if you read different commentators, with regard to the precise meaning of these metaphors, but I think you would all say this, what is universally agreed is, it ain't good what was happening in the northern kingdom of Israel. And the result of all of this is prophesied by the prophet. And that is, you're going to go back to Egypt, you Jewish people. You're going to go back to Egypt. He puts it this way. This shall be their derision, verse 16, in the land of Egypt. Now, they didn't literally go back to Egypt. You know what happened in 722 BC? The Assyrian army swept down and carried them off, not to Egypt, but to Assyria. But for the Jewish people, going back to Egypt is a picture of time in their history past when they were slaves. And so the promise here is that because they refused to listen to the prophet's message and turn to the Lord, they were going to be enslaved once again. I put at the bottom of the page, I think, a very appropriate um, section, two verses from Psalm 33. It says this, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. As we're going to see in our uh, additional studies in the book of Hosea, the people did not respond, and the consequences were dire indeed. Thanks for listening to Ancient Words, Modern Message. You can expect a new episode every other Monday, so please join us again. Ancient Words, Modern Message is supported by Hebrew Christian Fellowship. To learn more about our ministry or to ask a question, contact us at hcfellowship4819 at gmail.com. If you know someone who might be interested in this teaching, please share it with them.
And please consider leaving a review of what you've heard on Apple Podcast. Your input helps us make our program even better and reach new listeners. All you have to do is open up the podcast app on your phone, look for Ancient Words, Modern Message, scroll down until you see Write a Review, and tell us what you think. Ancient Words, Modern Message is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. And I'm your host, Roger Womble, reminding you that the Word of God is living and active. Until next time, showers of blessings on you and those you love.